Kingdom Family Diversity. I will be reading and teaching um, entirely from the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're actually going to start reading from verse 4 because we want to see our, uh, our passage in its, set in its context. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And then here's verse 7. This is the beginning of our passage for today. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have spoken and that your word continues to speak, that by the power of your spirit and through the joyful humility and sacrifice of your son, Jesus, your word is calling each of us today. Pray, Holy Spirit, that we would submit ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our lives, the word of the Lord today. Be our teacher, be our guide, instruct us and change us and grow us to be more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul has been describing the goal of unity for the church. Last week, Dom taught about unity, and he mentioned in his sermon, just as a little aside, he mentioned the necessity of diversity in order to experience true unity, you need to experience true diversity. And the Apostle Paul in our passage wants us to know that we are all equal. We're equal in Jesus. And, and being equal in Jesus is a good thing. Emphasizing our sameness in Jesus leads us to love and honor each other despite our differences. And then our text today builds on that foundation. And today he adds that we are also different. We're not just the same. We're not just equal in Christ. We're also different. And that is a good thing too. And he, his emphasis on our differences legitimizes our differences and leads us to respect one another for our differences. And Paul more fully lays out this idea of God's kingdom family design of unity through diversity. That's, that's what he's getting at here today. In fact, he's about to describe God's kingdom family using the metaphor of a body. We're going to see that. I'm, I'm kind of stealing someone's thunder a couple weeks away still. But that we are one body with many parts. There's diversity in the body parts. It is a unity, like a human body, that is due to its diversity. And we know, we've all probably experienced, that unity without diversity is not unity, it's homogeny. And diversity without unity is not true diversity. Diversity without unity is segregation. 
And Paul is laying the foundation for unity in God's kingdom family. And this unity depends on the diversity that God has engineered and created and built into his family plans. Just like the very diverse parts of our physical bodies and how they work in unison to provide healthy function and to form a healthy body, so has God designed and designated diverse people with diverse gifts to function and form his healthy kingdom family. And it's vital for anybody, a living body or any group, a church or an army, any organization, to value the diversity of its many parts. In college, I was, became very aware of this when I, I studied, I loved studying World War II. And uh, General George Patton fascinated me. He was a successful and audacious general during World War II. I'm sure he's a familiar name to you. But he understood, one of the things that was fascinating about George Patton is he understood the power of combined arms. He's an infantryman at heart, but he, he valued combined arms. And so he deployed a diverse assault across Europe. Uh, he, he was, he came from the infantry, but he valued and welcomed other useful tactical means to advance his army. He saw his army as a whole. And his deployment and use specifically of the Ninth Air Force is, if you're interested at all in military history, it's, it's fascinating. It completely changed the face of modern warfare. The Ninth Air Force became known as a tactical air force. General Patton understood, had a very clear view of what it took to win. His tactics emphasized violent action and speed to exploit opportunities. His standing orders were to attack and force the enemy to react to his tactics so he would never have to face the opposite of that. And with these strengths, you think that he would be unstoppable, and often he was. But Patton had, well, he had a couple of big weaknesses, but one of his big weaknesses, his big tactical weakness, was that he never really grasped the idea of logistics. Now, of course, he understood logistics, but he was much more interested in the tip of the arrow. How sharp was the point of the spear that was attacking? Patton was all about the attack, keeping his enemy on their heels. And he had little respect and little time for the heavy lifting that was required to get the fuel and the ammunition and the rations all the way out to the front. And this weakness cost many lives, even in some cases caused positions to be lost, Armies had to fall back. Troops were forced to hold their position or fall back as they waited for supplies. And one historian summed up Patton's tactical shortcomings this way. He said that he was a brilliant field general with one foolish tendency, for he cared deeply about the arrow that he fired, but he neglected the bow that fired it. And it reminds me of this, this you know, ancient African proverb that I looked up on Google and found out that it's actually specifically a Nigerian proverb that says, even as the archer loves the arrow that flies, so too he loves the bow that remains constant in his hands. See, this is exactly Paul's point in our passage today, that God's kingdom, his kingdom family is designed around unity. And that this unity requires each diverse part to function as God has designed it to function. Now, like I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the metaphor of the body of Christ more in coming weeks. But today, it's important for us to understand that this is the idea that Paul has in mind. As he's talking about diversity, unity through diversity, he has this idea of a body in mind. He's about to, he's about to go there. Paul is saying that Jesus is the head of the body and that we all receive our purpose 
and our power from Jesus, that he's the giver of gifts, as he, as he mentions in our passage. And just like a body requires vastly diverse parts in order to function in a healthy way, so does the kingdom family of God require tremendous diversity to function and walk in its unique giftings. And so we see unity is the goal and diversity is the means. Last week, Dom taught just the preceding few verses, and in those passages, you see that there's one body, one spirit, just as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, right? Of, of all who's in all, all this, this is all unity language that we've been brought together. We've been made one. We've been given the same. The playing field is exactly equal uh, in Christ. And then in our passage, it begins, if you look at the highlighted right there, the number seven, that's our passage. It says, but. The first word is a but. It, it qualifies it. However, Paul is saying, although there is unity within the family of God, there must also be diversity. We are all united in Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, because of Jesus. But, however, there are differences in us because of the differences in the gifts that we have each been given. Each part of God's kingdom family is uniquely gifted to uniquely function in order to experience true unity. These gifts are vital to the body of Christ. And these are generous gifts. They were costly gifts for Christ to, to give. These gifts were given according to the measure of Jesus' gift. That's the phrase from our passage. Now, what does he mean there, according to the measure of Jesus? What is that measure? What lengths did Jesus go to in order to bring us this unity, to bring us into God's family? What is this measure that was taken in order for us to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to one another? Well, we, we understand this measure because Paul spent the first two chapters going on about the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus and how we're invited into the family of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb. The measure was extreme. The measure of Jesus is extreme. Paul explains this great measure, the great lengths that Jesus went to. And he does it in our passage today by teaching us from the Psalms. He actually teaches us Psalm 68. So let's look at our passage here in verse 7. It says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now here he's about to instruct us. He says, Therefore, it says, and this is Psalm 68, verse 18, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then I love it because the Apostle Paul inserts his own commentary right into Scripture here. Verse 9, he says, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? It had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Up to this point, Paul has been laying out the case for unity in the church, that we are all united, right? We're all united in Jesus. But now he shifts his emphasis from unity of God's kingdom to diversity, to the function that makes this unity a reality. Paul points to the source of our diversity. The source of our diversity, he says, is Jesus. And he explains that the measure of the gift that Jesus has given to us is that Jesus descended that he stepped out of heaven. 
And we start to get some clues into the measure that Jesus took. That Jesus actually submitted himself. He chose to do the will of his Father. He chose to step out of heaven and, and, and become flesh, as the Bible tells us, at the request of his Father. Jesus submits to the will of his Father. But Jesus also sacrifices. He lays down his privilege. He lays down his rights. And we know that he even lays down his life for us. So God himself expresses unity by deferring to the diversity of the triune Godhead. We see the Son stepping out in obedience to, in deference to the Father. And the Father, in order to extend his love, sending the Son into the world. Jesus explains and demonstrates the Father's love best by laying down his own life for us. That the Father directs all the attention and channels all of His love for us through Jesus. And that's why we make everything about Jesus as a church. It's all about Jesus. As the Apostle Paul declares in Colossians chapter 1, the first part of verse 15, he says that Jesus, says He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And so both Jesus and the Father, they defer to the Holy Spirit in order to lead and empower people to know Jesus. See, Jesus' gift of salvation to us was a sacrificial gift. Jesus sacrificed. He gave his life in order to express and expose and enable the love of the Father for us. It was in deference to the Father. This sacrifice, this self-abandonment, it seems foreign to our cultural understanding, but self-abandonment and sacrifice is absolutely central to our call as Christians. Because we tend to think of ourselves as autonomous individuals, choosing our own path in life. But we were not created as autonomous individuals. We were created in God's image. This is why our culture's radical sense of individualism creates in us a very real tension. Robert Bela was a sociologist, and he was a professor of sociology for decades at UC Berkeley. Um, and he studied and wrote about a very specific area of sociology called uh, the sociology of religion. And he had some tremendous insight into this tension. And he studied American culture, Western culture, and studied a, the, the sociology of Christians and the struggles that they had living within this culture. And he wrote this, this insightful thing. He said, individualism lies at the very core of American culture. American individualism, with its primary emphasis on self-reliance, has led to the notion of pure, undetermined choice, free of tradition, free from obligation or commitment, as the essence of self. See, freedom from commitment is the ultimate end of individualism. Every man for himself is the ultimate end to individualism. This is not the pattern that we see in the triune Godhead that the Bible reveals, and this is not the pattern that we see in the New Testament church. And so for us, when we wake up in the morning and we say, who am I? How am I supposed to navigate my faith, what I believe in, with who I am as a citizen of this great country, as a person in this world, how am I to act? How am I to step forward? And I would propose that rather than starting with the assumed, the assumption of individualism, 
We should start with the image of God. In order to understand who we are and how we act and how we respond to others, we look at the image in which we were created. God exists as one God, but God exists in communion, in community of three persons. He is, always is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even the very names that God uses to identify the three persons of the Trinity are, are, imply relationship. They do not imply individualism. God the Father is God the Father. It's a name that implies that He has a son, and it, it implies relationship. It's a title given to a man with a son. There are many other titles God could have taken, but He chose Father. The same with Jesus, the title of Son. It's a relational title. It connects Him to the Son. The Holy Spirit, it's a title taken by virtue of His interaction with the Father and the Son, the Spirit of the living God, Spirit of Jesus. I give you my Spirit. See, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct persons by virtue of their relationship with one another. One theologian puts it this way. He says that God is no more than what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit give to and receive from one another in the inseparable communion that is the outcome of their love. There is no being of God other than this dynamic of unique persons in relationship. Now, that's a pretty radical perspective. This guy is a self-admittedly a very Trinitarian theologian, thinks very Trinitarian in, in the way he views God and, and views humanity. But what he's saying is significant. It's a, it's a good perspective for us to kind of lean into and just kind of get our head around for a moment. Because what he's saying is that God defines himself in terms of the inner relationships that exist among the diverse persons of the Trinity. That God himself defines himself as a unified entity as diverse persons loving, deferring, and submitting to one another. The Father is always the Father, unique and vital to the nature of God. The Son is always the Son. Again, unique and vital to the nature of God. And the Holy Spirit, in the same way, is always the Holy Spirit, unique and vital to the nature of God. And so God's triune nature is never blended. It's never separated. He is always three diverse distinct and unified entities as God. And we are made in His image, in His likeness, in His essence. It's a powerful picture. You guys tracking with me? And I'm getting kind of theological on you this morning. It's early. But this is absolutely vital for us to see the image of God. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, it just reveals in the very vocabulary that's recorded uh, of, our of our creation experience, this relational language. Read with me, if you would. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. There's God referring to himself in this, these plural words, this plural language as a plurality, as a community, as a people, as a, as an, he as an entity, as one God, is, is in this communal experience. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them... Now he's, he's projecting the same plural vocabulary on who he's creating now. Let them in plurality 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. And then it says, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Both male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. There's God as referring to himself as a we, as an us, creating a plurality that, that is a them, and then inviting this plurality into the work that he himself as a community is doing to steward and to oversee, to have insight, to have loving care for the creation. See, contrast that just for a moment, this mutual submission that we see in God's design for humanity. Contrast that to Western culture's obsession with radical individualism. And we have to ask ourselves this question. It's important for us. Is a person defined in terms of their individual autonomy and their individual successes apart from others, as our culture defines personhood? Or is a person defined in terms of relationships with God and others as God defines himself? See, each of us is unique. In the same way, just like the members of the Trinity are unique, we see in the nature of God a freedom that is found in the inner relationships and the mutual submission of God's three distinct and three diverse persons. God shows us our freedom, and that, that freedom is found in relationship with another. It's not freedom from other people, which is a typical Western perspective, which is kind of my default mode. Like, fr true freedom for me when I'm not in a good place is freedom from other people, right? It's not freedom from others that we're given. That's not the image of God. It is freedom for others that we see in the nature of God. And this, this is a paradox, and it exposes the value of uniqueness. It exposes the value of distinctiveness in our unity in Jesus. A theologian named Michael Downey talks about this uh, in, in these special terms. He says it this way. He says, the human person is not an individual, not a self-contained being who at some point or at some stage in life chooses or elects to then be in relationship with another and with others. From the very first moment of existence, the infant is toward the other, ordinarily the mother and the father, who is in turn toward and for the infant. From our origin, we are related to others. We are from others, we are by others, we are toward others, we are for others, just as it is in God to exist in the relations of interpersonal love. We are relational. He's saying that is what we are as created in the image of God. We weren't just created for relationship. We were created in relationship. We were birthed into relationship. But examining God's image in order to understand ourselves and our diversity and our unity, it, it doesn't just reveal that we are essentially relational. It reveals more than that. When we examine God's image, it also reveals important characteristics about his interpersonal relationships. 
And I find this personally very valuable because it helps me. It, it, it should help us understand what our interpersonal relationships should look like. This is one of the reasons that the Gospel of John is, is a fascinating read and a fascinating study. Because the Gospel of John reveals four distinct characteristics that help define the relationships between the Father. And these, these four uh, distinct uh, characteristics of God's interpersonal relationship are, are 100% translatable into our interpersonal relationships. So I'm going I'm to reveal these four things right now. There's four characteristics that define God's relational nature. The first thing that is always true about God in relationship within the Trinity is full equality. There's full equality between the members of the Trinity. The second is that there's mutual submission. The members of the Trinity are, are mutually submitted to one another. The, the third uh, relational characteristic that we see in the nature of God is intimacy, relational intimacy. And then the fourth is deference, deferring to one another, deference to other. And the Apostle John reveals these things throughout the entire Gospel of John. Uh, right from the very beginning of the very first uh, verse in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right, right out of the gate, John is demonstrating the, the equality of Jesus with God, that, the, that they are two members of the Godhead. The Father and the Son enjoy a relationship of full equality. And that we see from this full equality flows Jesus' mutual submission. In the next verse, verse 3, he continues. He says, all things came into being through him. He's talking about Jesus now. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him, in Jesus, was life. So Jesus didn't just speak things and they were created. Life came from Jesus. And the life was the light of men. So you have life, things that are animated and living, and then you have this, this spark that makes humans human. The light of men. Enlightenment. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so the Father, you see already just in the first five verses of the Gospel of John, the Father deferring to His Son the task and the privilege of speaking creation into existence is given to Jesus. And then we see the submission of the Son to the Father as Jesus then steps out of heaven and away from privilege, all in submission to the love of His Father. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the one begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son defers to the Father, stepping out of heaven in order to make the Father not Himself. He stepped out of heaven to make the Father known. And then you continue through the Gospel of John. In chapter 5, we see all four relational characteristics just firing, full equality, mutual submission, intimacy, deference to each other. All of God's relational nature is firing in John chapter 5. Look at verse 18. It should be up on the screen. It says, For this reason, therefore... The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered, and he was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something that He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Verse 21, it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgments to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So here we see the religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus because He's breaking the Sabbath. And he was calling God his Father. And in this passage, as Jesus is trying to, he's not trying to explain his way out of it. He's just trying to explain so they could understand. And he clearly reveals his equality with the Father in this passage. He clearly reveals the Father's deference even to him. That the Father defers to Jesus. He exposes the mutual submission as he states that he can only do what the Father does. And he exposes it even further by saying that the Father defers to the Son by leaving all judgment to the Son. And Jesus also reveals the beautiful intimacy, the the unity between Father and Son by showing the Son all that He is doing. The Father is is, is revealing just in this beautiful intimacy of an invitation into what He's doing. We see the same four relational characteristics of God throughout the Gospel of John, again in chapter 8, again in chapter 10. And then in John 14, Jesus starts involving the Holy Spirit as, as his, his ministry is starting to come to a head. And he, so he starts talking about the Holy Spirit. And during the discourse in the upper room, just before Jesus' arrest and subsequent crucifixion, we see the full equality, the mutual submission, the intimacy and deference between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is in John chapter 14. I'll just read two verses. Verse 13, it says, whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There you see the Son completely deferring to the Father. And then in verse 16, it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now, notice the equality of the Spirit and the Son in that that sentence that Jesus says. Jesus calls him another helper. He doesn't say he's a different kind of helper. The Spirit is another of the same kind of helper. The Spirit is God. Basically, whatever Jesus is, the Spirit is another form of that in the same vein. That, that's what the, the word that's used there, another helper. That could, there's a ton of other words that could have been used, right? Like he'll give you some other form of help. He'll give you some insight into this and that. No, the Spirit is God, a gift being given from God, of God. And in John 16, we see the Spirit's mutual submission to the Son and the Father. Jesus says this in verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He, the spirit, he will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And listen to this in verse 15, all things that the father has are mine, Jesus says, Therefore, I said that the Spirit takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You see this, this beautiful, glad submission between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is gladly submitted to the Son and the Father. 
The Son and the Father defer the role of helper, empowerer to the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three unique, distinct, diverse, different individual persons. All fully equal to one another. All mutually submitted to each other. All working from a place of intimacy with one another. All deferring to one another. We see in the image of God true hope for His church. We see in the diversity of the Godhead true hope for this diversity that's represented in the church. And in John chapter 17, we see an incredible invitation into this love, into this this relational deference and mutual submission. Jesus is praying in John 17. In verse 20, as he prays to the Father, he says this. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. It would be referring to the disciples that were in the room. He says, but for all those who would believe in me through their word. He's praying for us now, the church today. Jesus said, anyone who would believe in the word, in the ministry that those disciples picked up from Jesus and walked in 2,000 years ago, he's referring to the church today, the modern church. But for those who believe in me through their word, verse 21, that they may all be one. There's unity. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world would believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. There's our witness right there. It's, it's powerful language. So that the world would know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. And then in verse 26, he says, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, it's, it's this marvelous invitation into relationship with God. And it's not relationship on our own terms. It's not relationship from our cultural understanding. It's not relationship of a radical individual allowing some God into their life. This is relationship with people who were created in the image of God and who submit to God like God submits to Himself to God in the same way that God defers to us in stepping out of heaven. There's an implicit relational component to following God and to being together as Christians that we can only learn and only see in the nature of God Himself as a triune God. Jesus is praying for the Father, asking for us to participate in love, deference, joyful intimacy and submission to the Father, Son, and Spirit and one another. And the characteristics that define the relational image of God are the same characteristics that we are invited into when we are brought into God's kingdom family. These characteristics are vital in order for us to have healthy relationships. The image of God is our model for human relationships, especially in the church. This is the relationship that the Apostle John is talking about in the book of 1 John. 
If it's been a while since you've read the book of 1 John, it's like reading a love letter from a grandfather. You, you need to read it this afternoon. L- listen to this, or read along with me. It'll be up on the screen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. You just picture this old man who just loves this church so much. He writes them this. He says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The word for fellowship there is koinonia. It's a special word. He continues, he says, and indeed, your koinonia, your fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Man, that inclusive language, that humble spirit, that real deferential tone he's taking in that, this invitation is a game changer. We don't invite others into ourselves, into our autonomous awesomeness, right? As, as our culture would give, feed us that vocabulary, right? Like, welcome into my amazing world. No, we don't invite others in. We see in the Godhead that we're to give ourselves to other, others. We give ourselves in relationship. We give ourselves to God. We give ourselves as God has given himself to us. And in our relationships together, in our koinonia, or our fellowship, that's where we get the word fellowship from, we share ourselves with one another, and we share together in the life of God, enjoying, sharing the same intimacy of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's, it's a beautiful fulfillment of Jesus' prayer request in John 17. Guys, we're invited to image God in our diversity, in our love, in our relationships as a church, in our unique gifts, in our unique personalities, in our unique strengths. But our diversity only images God when it fuels the unity that we are called to as God's family. The diversity of God's kingdom kids is the fuel that powers the engine of kingdom family unity. Unity is fueled by our diversity, by our mutual submission to God and to one another. This idea of equality and intimacy and submission and deference, it needs to characterize church relationships. And this flies in the face of the radical individualism in our Western culture. Our church relationships will stand in stark contrast to relationships outside of God's family. They're going to look different. Why? Because we honor one another. We think the best of one another. We submit to one another. We defer to one another. We pursue true intimacy with one another, right? Trust and transparency with one another in our relationships. This affects our personal relationships. But it it doesn't stop there. This also affects our corporate relationship. And here's some examples of how we endeavor to do that as a church. At Reality Ventura, Reality Ventura is led by a group of elders who work in mutual submission to one another. There's, there's not a senior pastor that is a human here at the church. Our senior pastor is Jesus. There's no, like, lead pastor. We work in mutual submission, in deference to one another. Our finance team at the church is made up of men. Some are on staff, some are not on staff, but they're all mutually submitted to one another. Our preaching team, we share this pulpit once a week on Thursday mornings, and we submit our sermons to one another. We're not all on staff. It's a diverse group of people. It changes every, you know, there's different people that are there, different people that aren't. 
I got back from a, a high school camping trip on Wednesday late afternoon this week. I wasn't ready for the preaching meeting on Thursday. I still email my notes to the guys because I want to submit them to them. That's how we, that's how we do our preaching here. Every ministry in the church, we endeavor to establish and maintain a leadership or a partnership team that co-labors in mutual submission to one another. There's no lone rangers. We submit our church vision, our budget, and our annual finances to the whole church body, and we do it every year on a Sunday morning when the whole family is here. Now, some people will go, that's great, that's good accountability. It's not about accountability. It's about so much more than accountability. This is about unity. This is about us being one, us being on the same team. This is about all the frac- there's no place for fractions. There's no place for cliques. We're a family. And so we submit to one another. We defer to one another. We share information with one another. The goal is unity. And Paul concludes our text today by noting that Jesus has gifted each of us with unique gifts. And some of these gifts, as he points out in our passage, are leadership gifts. In verse 17, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul speaking, he says, In he, Jesus, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. Now, we're going to examine the purpose of these gifts in just a couple of weeks. I'm not going to talk about the purpose of these specific gifts. But what's important for us to see today is the tremendous diversity of these gifts that are given by Jesus, that are intended to create unity in the church. There is a diversity in the gifts that God has given. And this diversity of the gifts is intended to fuel the unity of God's church. Diversity is not intended to separate us into groups by our gifting. Diversity is meant to unite us into a family. Each of us is a unique family member using our diverse gifts to participate in submitted, intimate relationships, deferring to and honoring God and one another. You have been invited by God into His family, into His love, into intimacy with God. You have been brought near to God as a child. Guys, we need to fight for unity. It doesn't come easily. All the way back at the very beginning, Adam and Eve's sin affected all of their relationships. It affected their relationship with one another. It affected their relationship with God. It, it affected the, their relationship with their kids. And I mean, things were drama from out of the gate ever since sin. And so living in this fallen world means that we have inherited the experience of broken relationships as well. Regardless of how well my parents did raising me, regardless of how self-sacrificial they were when I was a helpless baby and a toddler, regardless of how amazing my mom specifically has been all throughout my life and is, continues today to be amazing in my life, all of us experience and exhibit brokenness and even unhealthiness in relationships. This tendency toward relational dysfunction, it can be a huge deterrent to healthy relationships in our lives and healthy ministry and healthy church. I'll be honest with you, the biggest failures in my life are nearly all failures in relationship. And here's the honest part, they're mostly all my fault. Who we are in relationship with others is far more significant than what we say or what we do 
Today, the Lord is highlighting our diversity, church. We are all different. You are created uniquely. You are gifted uniquely. But we are all made in God's image. And your uniqueness is intended to image God. And so we need to live our lives with our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so as you walk in your gifts, as you lovingly pursue intimate, submitted relationship with others, your gifts will contribute to a beautiful unity in God's kingdom family. How do we do this? What does this look like? Well, quickly, first, first, this is vital for each of us. We must each give ourselves to the loving relationship that Jesus has invited us into, relationship with him. We press into Jesus. We lean into the Father. We lean into him. This morning during prayer out in the lobby, I love this. My 12-year-old daughter comes and just like almost knocks me over, just leans into me as we're praying. I love it how kids do that. But we're given that opportunity to lean into our good shepherd, press into him, submit to the Holy Spirit. And as we press into and pursue intimacy with God, we inhale this relationship with God, and we then turn and exhale into our relationships around us. The same love and transparency, the same grace and peace, walking with others as full equals, walking in mutual submission with others, walking in deference, like it's, it's okay that I don't get my way. Pursuing intimacy, transparency, trust with others. And I needed to hear this this week, so if there's one other of you in here that needed to hear this, the Lord spoke to me, I, I believe, specifically and said there's no place for disconnected lone rangers in God's family. God himself is a communion of diverse, unique, connected persons. That's who he is. That's who he has revealed himself to be. And today, church, let's pursue the same fellowship and the same connection with God that Jesus invites us into. And let's allow God to lead us into the same fellowship and connection with one another, allowing the diversity of this family to fuel our unity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, as we worship, as we, as we respond to your presence and your goodness and your love, as we respond to the truth of your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, for that, that inner working that you do, that conviction of things within us that we allow to remain in us and be in us, those things that, that are not right, that turn us from you. Pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, as you convict us of those things that cause us to turn from you or hide from you, that, God, we would confess, we would draw those things out into the light. And then we would turn from those things back to Jesus. Holy Spirit, lead us this morning to Jesus, where we experience the love and acceptance and approval of the Father. Help us, Father, to see your glory, to know you are real and for us, to respond, God, to your love and your loving call to yourself. Help us, God, to pursue right, submitted and committed relationships 
with you and with one another. Do this in us today for the glory of Jesus. Amen.